Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Markus Weibel from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Today's guest is Luke Stiels, who is Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of Brussels and Director of the Sony Computer Science Lab in Paris. He's one of the pioneers of AI in Europe, having made contributions in the domain of knowledge-based systems, behavior-based robotics, and, most recently, language evolution. His current work centers on the mechanisms that allow autonomous embodied agents to bootstrap and self-organize communication systems similar to human natural languages. Hi, Luke. Hello. Welcome, welcome to Talking Robots. Yes. Um, I'd like to talk to you today about uh, your research in language evolution. Uh, what is language evolution all about, and uh, what are the questions that you're trying to answer? Well, basically, the question I'm trying to answer is what kind of mechanisms and interaction patterns do we have to put into autonomous embodied agents so that if they start interacting with each other, then we see a communication system emerge, which has some properties of human language. And the reason why I think we need to use that approach is because if we look at human language, then we see that it's really a living system. It's changing all the time. So I think the approach where we, we take human language as it is and we try to put it into computer systems is not really going to give us uh, language understanding or language production capability. And so in this route, I'm really trying to reconstruct or understand the, the creative, the uh, living aspects of language. Mm -hmm. So uh, and I understand you've done, you've done quite a few experiments on in this direction already. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about, uh, about your talking heads experiment? Yeah, so one of the ideas in our research is that embodiment is very important. Of course, we're talking about language, we're talking about symbols, uh, so the symbolic part is also very important. But I'm trying to bridge the gap through this project between embodiment in the world and uh, language and symbolic behavior. And so we do uh, all the time experiments that involve robots or, you know, something close to robots. And so the first one was the talking heads experiment. It's not the talking robots, but the talking heads, uh, which was basically two pan-tilt cameras that uh, could capture images of the world. And then uh, agents could use these cameras. They could control them and then play a little game, a language game with themselves about the things that they were seeing before them. And so the scenes that they could capture were things on a whiteboard, uh, geometric figures like triangles and squares and uh, circles in different colors and sizes, and etc., And so the language game would be that the speaker uh, selects an object from the whiteboard, then conceptualizes how that object is different from the other objects in the scene, then translates that to language, to a word or something. And then the hearer has to try to guess what object was chosen by the speaker based on the, the words that he heard. Now, the basic thing, of course, was that we didn't put in the language to start with. So we don't uh, program language in the robots, or it's not English or German or French or anything like that. And also, we don't put in the ontology. 
the repertoire of categories that they can use to distinguish objects in their world. And so this is a kind of uh, framework in which we then can study the emergence of an uh, ontology, the emergence of a lexicon, a vocabulary of words, and also the emergence of grammar. And so in this first experiment, we had installations in uh, different places, in London, in Paris, in Tokyo, Amsterdam, and so on. And we basically had uh, a population of agents that users could uh, start up. And the agents were traveling from one place to another. So they could go to Tokyo, let's say, and then play a few language games with other agents that were there. Then they could move to Paris and play some games there. And this was a way for us to, to do a multi-agent experiment and to have many different scenes and many opportunities for the agents to encounter new situations. So it was an incredibly big and exciting thing. And I mean, to our amazement, this, uh, the population grew to 3,000 agents over a course uh, of uh, six months. And they played about uh, half a million language games. And we did indeed see the emergence of uh, a lexicon uh, with a core of about uh, 30 words, but there were many more words in floating around. And uh, we saw communicative success going up and down. And, you know, everything was open. So the, the scenes that the agents could talk about would also change as the experiment evolved. So overall, they played half a million language games and. uh it's the biggest experiment that we, we have been able to do so far. I see. But it was based on, on really on talking heads, as the experiment is called, and on these talking heads looking at a whiteboard and That's right, on the pantil cameras. and yes. uh, Yeah. So that's a very simple setup, actually. And you talked a lot about embodiment in the beginning. And in your recent experiments, you have started to use the dog robots by, by Sony, the IBOs. Um, can you briefly describe this line of work and, and why... Yeah, why do you use dog robots now, and what do they bring to more to your work than the than the simple talking heads? Well, of course, in the uh, so the talking heads experiment took place around 1999. So this is about six years ago, seven years ago. Uh, and of course, uh, at that time, I was working also in my lab a lot about uh, on embodied intelligence. Uh, but it was extremely hard to get robots to be solid enough to be able to do systematic experiments, you know, like half a million interactions is really a lot because it involves pointing, it involves looking at the world. And so then uh, then the IBO came along, which is actually a highly sophisticated robot in terms of vision and locomotion, and is also solid enough to be able to do to do these experiments. So so then we started with those uh, so that they would have a richer uh, world experience. And they had a body so that they could talk about before, I mean, front and back and those kinds of things. Um, and they could move around so they could do actions in the world. And so the robots uh, really extend the potential for communication enormously. But how do I have to how do I have to picture this? I mean, do I have to picture two IBO robots sitting in an arena and looking at each other, or what's going on? Yeah, so the basically, like one of the games that um, we implemented and we can put on the website actually, is that two robots are walking around 
in search of the orange ball. You know, the orange ball is kind of the mythical thing for these uh, eyeballs. And so when they see the ball, they uh, and they see each other, they decide to play a game about that ball. And so one of the things that we then do is we move the ball. And so then the eyeballs, they at that moment, they sit down, they conceptualize the movement of the ball, for example, they might say, okay, this ball is moving from the big box left of me to the the green ball right of you. And so they they have uh, a way to come up with categories like red and green or big and small, and they have a way to uh, develop prototypes about the objects in their environment like balls and boxes and other kinds of things. And they also do something very crucial, I think, to intelligence, which is they, they are able to do perspective transformation. So they, in, in planning the language game, uh, they also consider what the situation looks like from the viewpoint of the other robot, so that if they say left, then they can also say left of you. So this particular experiment, for example, is, is in order to see in how far markers for perspective could emerge in a language uh, that is a communication system that is developing among these robots. So you see, we can do um, many more really extraordinary uh, things in this in this new setup. So you literally have a group of robots that that talk about well, a simple object, the orange ball, but that talk. Yeah, the the orange ball or the the it's rolling left towards the box, or you know, the big box is uh, I don't know. Uh, to the to the right of you and all those kinds of things, yeah. So this makes me think about uh, about animals. Actually, there's lots of simple animals that that most animals actually have some form of of communication. And I wonder if in your experiments you could uh, you could maybe answer the question: What would you have to put on Pinker's Pinker's blank slate, or what would you need to add to a to a basic animal brain to allow for complex language to evolve? Right. This is indeed the, the key question, actually, of uh, my research. You know, that, that, that's the question I want an answer to. And um, it turns out that there's uh, quite a big difference between animal communication and language among many dimensions. The most important one is that uh, animal communication systems are usually uh, genetically evolved for many good reasons. Uh, they have to be honest, they have to be uh, uh, unconscious, I mean instinctive, so to speak. And then, in the case of language, is something that uh, is conventional. So we can decide to call uh, a box, we can call it blah or dooby-doo or whatever. You know, it's a purely conventional thing which we can establish very quickly. So this conventional character of language is is already one of the major puzzles, in fact, how that is possible and how particularly a group of agents without telepathy, without central control, um, without prior, a prior lexicon that's innate, how can they agree among each other? And so all of our work is, is actually on, on self-organization, on how coherence can arise in a system of agents without... Uh, this kind of central control and uh, or without any kind of designer, whether it's genetic evolution or a human designer, 
who puts in the communication conventions in all of the agents. So this is actually, uh, you know, a, a big difference uh, between... Um, another big difference is that uh, language is a representational system in the sense that we it's based on a conceptualization of reality. It's not just a signal that directly reflects a state of the organism or something uh, or a state of the environment. There is, there is a perspective being introduced. There is... Uh, you know, emotional and social elements are are intervening in the representation. Now, so if you say, what do we have to put in, um, you know, in the animal brain? Well, I think the, the, the big debate is some people say you have to put in a lot. Uh, and then particularly Pinker would say, you know, you have to put in uh, universal grammar, language acquisition device, uh, you have to put in uh, ontologies, etc., uh, etc. Et so you have to put in the speech sounds that may occur. I mean, so there's a vast amount of information that some people, like Pinker or Chomsky, also assumes that has to be present genetically uh, evolved. And then there are others like myself who think that, in fact, language is based on the recruitment of a large number of fairly genetic, no, sorry, fairly generic uh, components like associative memories, ways to detect structure, like hierarchical structure, you know, all of these mechanisms which are used for many different purposes, for planning, for vision, you know, for uh, diagnosing something, I mean, uh, for all of these tasks like navigation, etc. And these same mechanisms have become recruited for language. So this is sort of socio-cultural hypothesis. And what you need for that uh, is at least you need a, a brain which has a lot of plasticity so that you can configure these mechanisms in, in new ways. And also you need actually something that may be surprising at first, but you need a, a basic uh, sociality among the agents. Because in, uh, in among animals, there's a kind of they live in a Darwinian world where they have to survive and fitness is the main criteria. Now, if you just apply that criterion, it is extremely difficult, maybe impossible, to get a language system, a conventional symbolic system of the ground. And so the, the idea is really that the agents have to be cooperative, they have to be honest in their communication and, and things like that. So the change is partly in, in terms of flexibility, I think, and not in terms of very specific uh, language organ or something like that, which you have to put in. So on the one hand, you said that language, there's no such thing as language genes, and really language as a dynamic, it's something, dynamic process, it's something that changes. It sort of hitchhikes a more, a more general sort of intelligent apparatus. And on the other hand, you, you, you've advocated the idea that that language or communication are really necessary to develop such a cognitive apparatus. So what what came first? It's kind of a hen-egg egg problem, I guess. What came first, or is it is it something that co-evolved? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, when I say there's no language genes, I do not mean, of course, that there's no genetic uh, role or no influence of genetics on language. I mean, clearly there is. Mm -hmm. It's just that there is no unique 
gene, a kind of big mutation or a couple of mutations that, uh, you know, you had humans without language and then suddenly children are born that have language. Now, I actually absolutely agree with you, or maybe you don't agree, but with the way you stated uh, my position, which is that there's a coevolution, and so that if you get a communication system of the ground, even a, a very basic one, you know, that the complexity growth is, is inside of it. I mean, it's, it's very similar to uh, evolution, in fact, to genetic evolution, because you have um, some very simple basic mechanisms and you put them to work and you end up with enormous complexity. And I think it's the same for language and cognition, which is that you have some very simple, well, simple, maybe they're not simple, but some basic fundamental mechanisms. And if you put them to work in the real world with all the richness of the um, of the real world and of interactions between social beings and all of that, then you end up with something of extraordinary complexity. And so this is, I think, what we have to understand, is how this complexity can grow. And so in that sense, uh, what we're trying to do is very similar to biology, except that we're trying to understand the growth of complexity through a cultural process or through a psychological development process and not through, through genetics. So I guess what you're saying is that, uh, in a way, language evolution or, or communication drove the evolution of cognitive intelligence and cognitive intelligence, that, that in increased cognitive intelligence drove the language evolution. Absolutely, yeah. The two worked on onto each other and pushed each other up in complexity, yes. Interesting. So um, let's let's uh, leave the theoretic questions aside for a second and uh And let's talk a little bit about your work and the practical applications. Are there any direct practicals, concrete practical applications of your work? Yes, absolutely. So initially, of course, I thought that, um, you know, the practical applications would be in robotics, uh, communication among robots. So suppose that we send a group of robots to Mars, okay, or to, to the, some other environment that we cannot see and experience and predict. Then the question is, what communication system are we going to give to these robots? And then the technologies and the approaches that we are developing would allow them to self-organize their own communication system, you know, because we cannot foresee what situations that they will have to be able to talk about, or we don't know the sensors. I mean, we don't see in infrared or something like that or in sonar. So, so this is, I think, one application, but it's... Um, It's not something that happens every day, of course, uh, at least not yet. But uh, meanwhile, it turned out that there's another application area which has uh, popped up, uh, which is in uh, on the web. And uh, what we have seen on the web recently is all sorts of phenomena of collective intelligence, you might say. Uh, one example of this is collaborative tagging. And so in collaborative tagging and sites like Flickr or Delicious or Last.fm, you know, many sites now have it. it. The ontology is not defined by designers like in the semantic web and imposed, but it sort of uh, emerges in a bottom-up way. And so, in fact, what people are doing is they're, they're playing a kind of language game of the, the sort of similar to the language game that we 
have implemented and studied in our multi-agent systems. And then you see also coherence arising and you see ontologies emerging. And, and so the same phenomena that, um, that we've been looking at, this kind of language dynamics, is now visible on the web. And it's absolutely fascinating to uh, extract data and to apply the uh, methods that we have been developing, including the methods from complex systems to analyze what is going on. And then to see, in fact, that uh, there's this kind of relationship. So this is where I see, um, you know, a big uh, potential area is that researching how languages and ontologies emerge is helping us to understand phenomena like collaborative tagging and to invent new tools uh, to help people in, in shaping a language system in an emergent fashion. So these networking sites that on, and music sites that you mentioned, uh, they definitely have had a very big impact on uh, on our society. And I guess if you talk about the internet, language is everywhere. Yeah, and it's typical that uh, you know before you, many people criticized what I was doing because they say, but language doesn't change. But I mean, if you look at internet or at SMS uh, messages and all that, you see that language in these media is is changing incredibly fast. New words are popping up all the time. They're propagating like viruses. But despite all these dynamics, there's still coherence to the whole thing. And there's still, uh, you know, that's what we try to understand, right? How tens of thousands of people can collectively create a coherent communication system. Okay, let's move a bit to more general questions. Um, what do you think are the big goals in understanding language evolution in the next 20 years? Well, I think we need to, uh, we have still a large number of very difficult open questions before us. You know, a lot has to do with uh, grammar, with more complex conceptualizations of reality, uh, all of those kinds of things. So the, this research paradigm of studying language games on embodied agents like robots and doing the kinds of experiments that we, we have been doing is, I think, just the beginning. And I really hope that a lot more people uh, join this, this very exciting adventure. But so the, the big goal, I would say, is to understand the mechanisms that uh, humans are using to create, to invent language, and to coordinate language with each other, and also to invent and coordinate the conceptual uh, ontologies and the repertoires that that are underneath it. And so I, I think we can do that. Um, and of course, in some sense, it requires solving many of the fundamental problems of artificial intelligence in general. Just to give one example, it's pretty clear that one of the mechanisms that uh, humans use to create language is reuse. So they, for example, they have already a word and they will use analogy or metaphor or something like that to carry over the meanings from, from this existing word. Uh, well, sorry, they, they take this word and they reuse the meanings of that word to express new things. And so this kind of, you know, if, if you want to understand that, we need to understand analogy uh, as one of the basic processes of uh, of mental mental activity. 
So you see, the by taking this route, we also are forced to address basic issues in uh, in artificial intelligence in general. And uh, talking about artificial intelligence uh, in general, uh, which fields of artificial intelligence would you say are are the most promising technologically today, and and why? Um, well. It's pretty clear that the biggest impact of AI today is the, through the web. I mean, the search engines and everything underneath it is uh, for a very large based part based on AI technology. I mean, for information retrieval, for seeing patterns, for, you know, uh, uh, dealing with massive amounts of information in a semantically meaningful way. And so uh, there, there are lots of technologies, lots of AI ideas which which are relevant to that. Um, of course, there are many other things that are going on and are relevant. But if, if you ask to me, uh, from a technological point of view, that would be the, the most promising area. Okay, and uh, for, uh, I'd like to hear a prediction from you. Uh, in 20 years from now, Uh, what would you say, which fields will have had the biggest impact uh, on our lives, everyday lives? Yeah, it's very difficult to say. I, it's pretty obvious that, um, I mean, the, the robotics area has made, um, in my view, enormous progress, you know, when we move to behavior-based robotics in end of the 80s, early 90s. Um, and uh, I think it will continue to make major progress. Now, the question is how these robots are going to impact our lives. Personally, I believe that uh, to put robotics in real life is uh, is not obvious and not something that uh, maybe is so desirable. Um, you know, you see a lot of predictions about the household uh, robot that's going to do all sorts of things, but I'm personally extremely skeptical skeptical about all this. So I think the the impact, even within the coming 20 years, is much more going to be in uh, knowledge, knowledge processing, in um, information retrieval, information exchange. Um, um, so that means further in the direction of the web. And um, but I think the big change that has to come is to to think about the the origins of intelligence, to think about it as a biological process, in other words, not something that we can engineer or even something that can be learned, but something that's, uh, that we try to understand how intelligence is growing, how it develops, how language is growing, uh, all those kinds of things. So I think in, in that sense... Um, AI will be a lot more involved with biologically oriented ideas and a lot more with, uh, let's say, multi-agent or collective intelligence rather than the single agent or the single robot or a single standalone system. Thank you very much, Luke, for joining us here on Talking Robots. Okay. This concludes this episode with Luke Steels from the University of Brussels. Make sure you check our website for past and upcoming podcasts or to post your comments on our show. I'm Marcus Weibel. Thanks for listening.
Making Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.